It's about that time, isn't it? Yeah, the time of the podcast. The era of the podcast. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the German time in the garden. I think I see where this is going. Yeah, no, no, not. We're not going into that German time. Very, very different German time. Oh, you meant like German time, like the herb, the herb. The herb, Matt. Herb. (laughs) I did not see that coming. Yeah, you could say that. See what I did there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very beautiful. Now, much like the Nazis that you were referring to, today we're talking about pure genetics and the purity of the pollinator. And, well, honestly, uh, a lot of stuff. Okay, so just off the beginning, I feel like this is probably going to be a good episode to get us canceled. Oh, absolutely. Now, there's a lot of stuff out there on honeybees and whether or not they're a good thing. They're weird, fuzzy, and in a lot of trouble. These insects are actually all bees, wild ones. And they're debatably more important than the honey-making kind. People are really worried about bees. We will take the plight of the honeybee for granted at our own peril. But what most people don't know, honeybee numbers are increasing worldwide. Not just that, but the way humans use honeybees makes them a problem. Putting a honeybee hive in your backyard doesn't help. Because we're saving the wrong bees. You've probably heard some stats on pollinators on the news or like an infograph on like Instagram around like the importance of pollinators that they're responsible for nearly 85% of the world's flower plant reproduction and even 35% of global crop production, if not more. And of course, it's not just the bees, native or non-native, but wasps, flies, beetles, ants, butterflies, moths, and a whole lot more. There's over 3,600 native species of bees in the U.S. and Canada. However, big however, the bees with the highest population on the continent, the honeybee, isn't native. It's a non-native bee. And it was introduced in the early 17th century for, you guessed it, honey, as well as their wax production. Okay, so before we go any further, um, and also not knowing anything about any of this, I'm just going to go ahead and guess that those population counts aren't even close. Like, there's no way anybody's out there counting all of these bugs. Yeah, there's definitely... So, I guess what you're asking about is, like, the population, the diversity. They're taking, like, a rough estimate, like like an educated guess. But there's no way they know the numbers, is what I'm saying. Yeah, we don't actually know how many bees or how many species of bees there are for native pollinators, um, there's numbers, or there's a number of bees, for example, that we don't even know if they're extinct or not, ones we thought were extinct and then we find them again. As for like how many native bees there are compared to like non-native bees, like honeybees, like, yeah, the volume of, if you were like to weigh or count the numbers of like honeybees versus the native pollinators, that's not even close. And in regards to those native honeybees, we do know that they are, as I kind of inferred, experiencing a lot of population declines. In fact, 40% of pollinator species may be at risk of extinction in the next few decades. And it's because of this that honeybees have quickly gone from the, the thing people think of when you say save the honeybee or save the bees to maybe the honeybees don't really need saving. And now one of the things that's becoming a louder voice in that conversation is that the honeybee is actually causing many of the pollinator problems. And that's happened fairly quickly over the last decade. 
So we can look at a article from the Scientific American written by Allison McAfee in 2010 called The Problem with Honeybees. In that article, she states that, in quote, high densities of honeybee colonies increase competition between native pollinators for forage, putting even more pressure on the wild species that are already in decline. Honeybees are extreme generalist foragers and monopolize floral resources, thus leading to exploitative competition. That is, where one species uses up a resource, not leaving enough to go around, end quote. Yeah, loaded like me and all the other drunk uncles on holidays. And unlike most of the other stats listed, the ones that she brings up in this article aren't even cited. And this isn't like a, I'm not like trying to pick on Allison McAfee either. This is, um, well, first off, she has a whole team that reviews her work. And it's not just Scientific American that's making these types of claims. But like a quick Google search will show you like long lists of articles highlighting the same argument that honeybees monopolize floral resources. So being me... I had to know if this was actually true. And that's what we're going to find out today. I mean, you know, the episode research is done. Like you've done it. You found out. So can we just, as the audience and me, can we just know the answer now so we can disagree and ignore the rest of it before we have to listen to any more of this? Do you really think that I'm going to let you off the hook that easy? No, no way. You were the one that said this was going to be a good episode. Yeah, and I thought it was going to be short and sweet, kind of like the mead that I thought we were going to drink at the end of this episode. But you know what? Fine. No mead, just bees. Continue. Just bees. Isn't this episode called like native versus non-native pollinators, specifically non-native bees? That's the honeybees you're referring to? Well, yeah, that's true. But before we even get there, we need to really set the stage. All right. Before I lose my cool, I'm going to ask you, how far back do we got to go? It's a warm morning as the sun comes up. The dew dissipating from the grass. A blue jay passes over. A call rings through the woods. Other birds join in. This isn't the birds the and the bees. Just the bees, please. Listen, you gotta set the scene. The flutter of wings beating against the dense shrub layer near the lake erupts and the Japanese knotweed bends under the warm breeze. See, was that so terrible? I mean, I guess as a whole, it was fine, but I'm still... Do you feel calm? A little bit. Like, a little I, bit. A little I can calm. smell I can smell the grass. Like, it's that fake grass mm. smell. Like, yeah. they put in detergent. That grassy grass. They put in detergent yeah. to get rid of, like, the grass stains, but it still smells like fresh spring grass. They try to, like, sell you that scent. That's what you just did to me to my ears. Thank you. Thank Good. you for that. That's, that. that's exactly what I wanted Appreciate to Appreciate it. So, Where are the bees? So let's talk about why I did that. So before we can talk about like native pollinators versus non-natives, we have to really talk about their food. Now, one of the most damaging non-native plants we have in our part of the world is Japanese knotweed. Now, the thing is about Japanese knotweed is not only do they take over when they have the opportunity, they also create these massive blooms, and these blooms also come really late in the year and are theoretically at least important when it comes to providing a late-season pollen and nectar source before like a really long and cold winter. Okay, so I kind of see what you're saying here, where we've got non-natives and invasives, but they aren't all bad. And obviously, they're different from what used to be here as and invasive, but you know, how do we relate to the honeybees we're talking about in this episode? So yeah, you brought up one good point, which is that they're not all bad. 
And we have to take that into account. And then how does that impact this bigger picture? And obviously, Japanese knotweed is one single specific example. Fortunately, people much smarter than me have actually decided to spend some time trying to figure out if you could quantify the、uh, impacts from these non natives as like a broad category. Now, even more fortunately, many of these people decided to do some digging and try experiments across North America, which, while it may not represent the whole globe, it definitely is better than like relying on one or two experiments. Okay. And have you read these for us? So, you could say I perused them, and the results and、uh, resources as a whole are really interesting. While we have talked about the concept of specialists and generalists, and how co evolution can lead to a highly specialist and atomized relationship where species can only get pollinated by like a singular other native species, and in those cases, the value of each individual、uh, of the other species is crucial, right? Because you need that other bug or plant to survive. But obviously, those relationships get strained when you start having these invasive species move in, right?、Uh, especially when we're talking on such large scales, while native plants have been under kind of a scorched earth policy, right? All right. So I'm thinking scorched earth would probably be better, to be honest. And for once, I'm not talking about total war. Yeah, we need a, we need a sound that plays when we make like fire beaver references. Dom, do you got anything for us? Oh, what does a fire beaver sound like? Nice. So, yeah, that would be better. But instead of flames, it's more like we got topsoil and sod. So, like most things, the, the important thing to be aware of and to be really thinking about is the scale more so than the invasive itself. Something, something complex system science. I feel like I'm just repeating myself at this point. I mean, you might be. We are on microphones I, and it's just like you spit it out into the void. I feel like I do that a lot. Yeah. Uh, I usually don't even have your mic on. So, like, maybe a third of what you said is recorded. Fair enough. So,、uh, like I said, sometimes these invasives aren't all bad. Sometimes they offer new nectar sources, but obviously that doesn't help the specialists. Now, even before dealing with the damage of displacing natives, there are problems with some of these nectar sources. Some of them, the nectar of some plants contains a lot of like secondary compounds. Now, these are usually associated with like defense against herbivores. So the plants don't get eaten or they get picked at, but not necessarily like totally destroyed. The impacts of these compounds on pollinators are often unknown. However, some people have started to actually go and research this stuff.、Uh, some researchers actually took a common landscaping plant, rhododendrons. To find out their impacts on the health of non native and native bees due to a chemical, I'm never going to say this right, gryanotoxin, a secondary compound in their nectar. Now, survival of the solitary bee and the bumblebee species were not affected by this chemical. However, honeybees were 20 times more likely to die when fed solutions containing the same substance. Further, solitary bees were deterred from feeding and exhibited some behaviors indicative of sublethal toxicity in response to excessive consumption of gryanotoxin. Okay, so were the bees being poisoned by this compound, or is the honeybee more like your family golden retriever where it, it might gorge itself to death if it doesn't stop eating? Yeah, so the honeybee, I mean, it's basically like quasi domesticated, and we've bred out a lot of those natural instincts. So it is kind of like a golden retriever. It doesn't know when to stop. 
Whereas not only do the native bees have more resilience in in the sense that they can handle more of these chemicals, but also they are smart enough to like recognize when they have that toxicity and seem to be able to keep themselves from over-engorging to the point where they risk their own lives. The more importantly, really, is that we can start to see how these things are a lot more complicated and that invasives like rhododendrons, which are not even really invasives, they're just something we plant everywhere. And they also provide incredible amounts of nectar, which, oddly enough, honeybees can't harvest really from. So they're not necessarily bad in the sense of providing food for uh, a non-native species, which, again, it's just it's really messy, right? Another major talking point around invasives in our non-native honeybee is around the idea that because invasives are often from places where honeybees are also from, honeybees are really good at pollinating them, at least in theory, right? And in that process, they would help them produce seeds, which I uh, 100% agree. It sounds like it makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. And while it might be true, the basis that honeybees are causing invasives to be more successful because they can pollinate them better, usually ties back to this one particular study. The study is called The Influence of Sociality on the Conservation Biology of Social Insects from 2001. Okay, so I need help with this one because that doesn't seem remotely related in my, my simple brain. You know what? I read the paper and it really has nothing to do with bees. Uh, well, it does, but a little bit, not too much. doesn't at all talk about what we're talking about though, right? In this paper, it mentioned this concept of like helping invasives continue to spread. It refers to another research in 1994 called, in quote, an assessment of the contribution of honeybees to weed reproduction in New Zealand protected natural areas. Okay. So it sounds like you're onto like the first few breadcrumbs of a bee conspiracy or something. And I'm kind of into it. Like I'm interested now. I'm basically the dude from It's Always Sunny that's like memed. That was me putting together this there research. Is no Pepe, there is no Pepe Lopez. Yeah. This is the last paper, I think, that we're going to go down, at least for this rabbit hole. But like, I do think this is important. So in this uh, second paper- uh, Third, technically, if you include the people who are referring to it. Look at that. You are actually interested in this one. So this third paper that is constantly referred to as the founding source that everyone uses when they're uh, citing that honeybees are increasing non-native species. Now, ready for the last sentences of the abstract, because um, I think it points to what exactly I'm trying to get to here. A substantial proportion of surveyed weeds in protected natural areas are probably visited by honeybees, about 43%, including half of the problem weeds. However, reproduction of the majority of problem weeds is characterized by plastic reproductive mechanisms and or simple pollination mechanisms where honeybee influence is low or unimportant. Although honeybees may be important pollinators of some weeds, they probably do not contribute substantially to weed problems. End quote. That is the paper that everyone refers to that says honeybees increase the pollination rates, and the spread of invasive species. Okay, so based off of just that little bit of the abstract that you just read, it sounds like it's kind of BS, but I don't know. It seems like they did some sort of research to come up with some of those numbers. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's ambiguous. Ambiguous. That's a good word. We we don't actually really know, but there doesn't seem to be any like damning evidence, which if this was like, if honeybees are the main reason why these invasives are starting to take over, 
you would think there'd be really obvious evidence, right? Mm -hmm. Now, one more paper, I promise. Uh, it's called Biotic Invasions, Causes, Epidemiology, Global Consequences, and Control. Okay, so this seems like it's going to have some of that damning evidence. So this is another paper that's repeatedly referenced in the anti-honeybee crusade. In this paper that you will see at the bottom of every other research paper that references this, doesn't mention honeybees once. So it's a house of cards, and I'm just judging books based on their covers like I do. Yeah, at this point, what's concerning to me is that like a lot of pop science writers will refer to these papers because everyone else does, but there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of actual evidence backing up any of this. This is like, where, where did the rumor come from? And then it like became codified. Sorry, I, I kind of got on a tangent on this I one. I mean, I'm following you, though. I'm convinced you've uncovered some sort of bee conspiracy, but the only thing we're missing is motive. So I guess we have to ask the question, qui bono? Like, who benefits? Hmm. You'll find out in this ad. Howdy. Hello. Hang on. Let me, let me try that again. <clears throat> Hello, skeleton army. That's aggressive. Yeah. I'm Angel Luna. I'm Nash Flynn. Welcome to Death and Friends. We're two comedians with a podcast. It's very original of us. Quiet, you. It is a history tour about everyone's final destination. As an academic... Nerd. I have a PhD. I almost sort of have a... Kind of have a PhD. Anyway, I've researched a lot of death history. And also, I'm here. We'll talk about ways we die, ways we get buried, and ways we get remembered. And we even make some friends along the way. Huh? Is it a comedy podcast about death? Or a death history podcast that's funny? We have no idea. Mm, look, death can be tricky to talk about. And even though we're talking about it a lot. <laughs> Just please know, in fact, remember that you are loved, you matter, and if you don't want to be your own friend, we will happily be your friend. Put me in your top eight, baby. Join us and listen to Death and Friends. Become a member of the Skeleton Army. Like right now. Do it. It's mandatory. Go on. Subscribe. Hit the button. Mm -hmm. Yep. You mm -hmm. say it. Did yep. you do it? Yes? Okay, good. Okay. Love you. Love you. Death and Friends Podcast. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Death? So when I was researching this episode, this was the big claim I couldn't find any real papers uh, recently on. So then I decided to see who everyone was citing in their criticisms of honeybees and invasives. And yeah, house of cards kind of shit. Yeah, we, we've built intrigue into this episode. Like I'm in, I'm into it now. Elliot's sold on this. This is his life now. All he does is research bees. So anyways, back to what we were talking about, though. Invasive plants. To change gears a little bit, let's talk about farming. Now, farming has some similar complications to invasives that monocropping in particular displaces native species, right? You wipe out a field and you put in a bunch of crops, there's no native species. Now, the million-dollar question from an ecological standpoint is where the line stands where monocropping becomes a net negative between ecological destruction and the scales of efficiency where you're getting more benefit for feeding people versus what you're losing for the ecosystem. And while that is a very, very complicated subject that we can't really get into completely today... See, when he says that word today, I'm just going to assume that it's on the list. It is on the list before to Because of course it is. Anyways, my point is that we need to take a look at monocropping and how this impacts native diversity in comparison to the impacts of honeybees, which, as we pointed out in the specific example above, don't always compete with natives. 
That's not always the case, and uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I also think that there's an assumption based on like the eco meme culture that there's like this direct displacement. In 2016, some research was done on just this, specifically how pollinator diversity changes based on scale and how far the distance of these monocrops impact native pollinator diversity. What they found was that row crops generally had a negative effect on bee abundance at as low of scales as 900 feet. Okay, so when you say 900 feet, does that mean 900 square feet? Are you talking about like 900 foot rows What or what? The sites they tested the pollinators was at 900 feet as the crows flies to something that wasn't monocrop or roads or something like that. So like just if you see a cornfield, drop a pin in it and 900 feet out, you hit the edge of a road where there's some wild stuff growing or a woods or something like that. Now that does sound really big, 900 feet. But in reality, that's only like a fifth of a mile. If you drove by like five farms on a mile stretch that were square lots, each of those leaving the very edges for native pollinators, they'd still show that negative effect despite the native pollinator space. Okay, so it's not really a lot of space when you think about it. No, and it's nothing when we think about the scale of industrial agriculture, right? Usually we're not talking about fields that are in the feet. We're talking about fields in the miles. What also is interesting is that like, grass uh, and pasture, forage crops, small grains, and open water all contributed positively to pollinator abundance while wetlands had a negative effect. So should we drain the swamp like Trump was saying? I, no, we're not going to. I'm not even going to do that. We're not going to do that. I'm not talking about that. Your jokes are getting terrible. <laughs> now, at two miles, corn actually, as one specific crop, positively affected bee abundance and richness, while soybean acreage decreased species richness. It is native to North America and was grown on some scale in the region prior. So like that makes a lot of sense. What was most interesting though, is that unlike other studies, landscape diversity within 900 feet was not found to significantly benefit pollinator diversity. Okay. So smaller monocropping below 900 feet didn't show to have much benefit. So why and how? Yeah, that's a good question. Now, like any research, it's possible that the study is an anomaly, but the evidence suggests that less highly managed areas still represent degraded habitat within the landscape. Okay, so because the wild, air quotes wild, we'll call it, is not really reflective of native land before agriculture, that's probably why we're not seeing a real benefit. Yeah, like if you think about uh, like a parking lot, like the side of the parking lot around here is it's very sandy so it's all like autumn olive and there's no natives that are coming up underneath that autumn olive so even though it's wild it's not like the mulched beds in the lowe's parking lot themselves it's not significantly better for native pollinators because like those aren't native plants and you're not getting that biodiversity support that you would otherwise get if that was more native plants right mm. The role of the invasives or the non-natives directly impacts the, the amount of diversity in these pollinators that are these native pollinators that we're trying to see more of, right? Oddly enough, one of the things that I think is kind of coming up in this analysis is that monocropping isn't necessarily bad, and that's because it isn't necessarily a new system in North America. That said, the fundamentals around what the integration of what monocropping looked like is where the differences highlight why they succeeded, while today's modern monocropping obviously misses the mark in a lot of ways. Again, uh, for today's purposes, we won't have time to cover that right now. Yeah, sure. We'll add it to the list, guy. We'll add it to the list. Add it to the list. That subject alone 
probably a two-parter. If you're really dying for monocrop information or monocrop content, just hit us up in like email or something like that. Yeah, weird. And it's we're actually cropping the content right now. That's weird. Yeah, you got to crop it. Got to get that crop top. I forgot what we were talking about. Raindrops, crop tops, smoking them buzzies in the straw thoughts. Are you ruining Migos for me right now? I'm improving it beyond your belief. I'm about to go get the strap. <laughs> yeah. Tell me where your corn's at. We already did corn. Okay, so uh, I guess to get back to the, the real corn, getting that, the real question should be around, well, if we can make healthy pollinator sites, how much of our farmland really needs to be converted into this native pollinator landscape? And how does this impact things like honey production? Because like at the end of the day, we can complain about the impacts of beekeeping and apiaries moving, but like we do generate a ton of calories from it. And also, is it viable to make our monocrops native pollinator driven? Yep. Glad I asked. Right? Now, the evidence suggests, and it's still really preliminary at this point, and we aren't addressing the issue of what that might look like or how native ecology specifically based on place might drive what the scale might actually be. But we do have uh, some suggestions that this can be somewhat possible. The example I want to point to is specifically from a paper written by R. David Sampson in 2018 on almond farms, where he states that, in quote, a farmer who relied entirely on wild pollinators would set aside a little over an eighth, roughly 13% of their land to support pollinators. Honestly, not as bad as I would have thought. No, it's it's not really as, as high as you'd expect. That said, uh, a 13% reduction in food production paired with also losing honey production is, well, it's a lot of food. Not to be like the asshole defending modern agriculture by any means, but like still, that's that's a lot of food you're taking almost a sixth of cropland out of production. And that doesn't address the labor costs of managing these native wild pollinator sites either. Because again, we've got to deal with those invasives. And like I also said, there's a lot we could talk about here, but we won't because of time. However, we haven't talked about one particular nuance, and that's the paradox of efficiency, which is what we're kind of hinting at at this point. Okay, so let me take a crack at it. And that would be when something's like too good at being efficient, where a little bit of efficiency or I guess a par level of efficiency is good. But at some point, if you increase that efficiency, you're getting diminishing returns. Yeah, like it's um, at some point getting a 10% gain when you're almost at 100% efficiency isn't that big of a deal, right? And how much energy did you spend to get that little bit more? So even if most ecosystems aren't at the scale of what, you know, 13, 15%, a little bit of native habitat does go a long way. But if I heard correctly, it didn't seem to in the previous study. And well, there's a lot of pieces here. The first is that this study the second one, the one we're talking about, about the almond farms, is completely driven by mathematical modeling. We haven't talked about, and we won't have the time or data that exists to talk about where and how these pollinator sites should exist, because again, a lot of this is still really novel research, and we don't know where it will end up. But we do have a lot of research on the impacts of native plants and how they impact both native pollinators and non-native pollinators. And much like that 13% figure, the evidence might surprise you. That's funny because you never surprise me unless you make an accurate pop culture reference. Yeah, that doesn't happen very often. Now, uh, fortunately, there's been a lot of research on the relationships of native plants and their impacts on pollinator diversity, because that seems like the easier one to prop up if we need to save the bees, right? Right. So you just, you know, shove a bunch of native plants into greenhouses and then shove them outside into the world. Problem solved. 
Yeah, that would be nice. Well, it would solve a lot of problems. But here's the thing. There's been a lot of very specific research done around this, and the evidence is, well, shifty, let's say. What do you mean shifty? Huh? The hell? Take his money. I didn't know you're... <laughs> I didn't know you were here. The whole time. Why didn't you say anything? I don't know. No one asked me anything. Oh, well, anyways, uh, as I was saying, it's complicated. Like Matt introducing himself on a podcast. Not in, not in a we don't really know kind of way, uh, but more of a we have a bunch of specific examples, but we we don't know if that tells the whole story kind of way. The evidence to this point suggests that first and foremost, native plants are more efficiently used by native pollinators and that honeybees will draw from those natives, but even non-natives are capable of feeding many pollinators despite being non-native. Okay, so we're good or we're not good. I don't understand. Yeah, I want to play a quick clip from Gail Lengelotto. Uh, she was at the Oregon State University Garden Ecology Lab talking about a research project they did comparing non-natives and native plants and how they serve pollinators. And then in the first column, they're ranked by how popular they were with different bees, with oregano being the most attractive in 2018 and uh, milkweed being the 12th most attractive in 2018. If you're interested in seeing how attractive they were to honeybees, which are non-natives versus our native bees, we actually have the number of visits per five minutes on average in these next columns. And then this column, which is the second to the um, right column, I have how attractive those plants were to the bees in 2017, just showing you that they're really um, Gilea was most attractive to bees in 2017, second most attractive in 2018. Oregano was seventh most attractive to bees in 2017, most attractive in 2018. So what's interesting here is that once the non-natives were within the ecosystem for a year, they actually outperformed pollination services in comparison to natives. That said, a majority of their pollination was done by non-native honeybees. So... And imagine non-native honeybees have less competition at non-native plants. I think that'd make the most sense, right? So then shouldn't things be mostly fine if we just planted more natives? Well, yes and no. <laughs> Do you ever get tired of saying that? When I get tired of watching your face get annoyed by it. I'm tired of it. Oh, now you've got lots of things to yeah, say. Yeah, and I like having Matt around. So do you want to know why I said yes and no? <laughs> I don't, but for the listeners, fine. Okay. Wow. You know what? You can mute your microphone and your headphones, and I will just talk into the into the darkness. It'll be me and Matt. How about that? No, so, I'm going to log off. Oh, wow. Just doesn't say anything. Leaves. <laughs> exactly. Chad move. <laughs> that's, what, that's what microphones are for. It's when nobody wants to listen, Andy. Just shout into that thing. Yeah. So like we said earlier, honeybees are these generalists, right? They can basically forage whatever for better or worse. So it makes sense for them to go to the, the least competitive plant, right? Which is a great skill. But ultimately, if everyone were to replace their, I don't know, like roses with native plants, they'd end up competing with native pollinators. In general, they're less efficient at utilizing the pollen in those native crops. Uh, in some cases, up to 55% less efficient. So we're kind of screwed. No. So the underlying point here is that we need more flowering plants in general, right? 
We need the ecological infrastructure that can support the insects. And that's not just the pollinators themselves, but the habitats, the reductions in pesticide use, insecticide use, and so on. And of course, honeybees aren't the only non-native pollinators. Tell my allergies that. And that's another long conversation. The point is that we need more, more insect-pollinated species and preferably a diverse selection. Given the current state of like exotic species here, I'm not worried about incorporating more. Like we, we definitely need to be managing and limiting the amount of non-natives and invasives for sure. There's plenty of those. We don't have to worry. But in a perfect world, it would become a problem, right? If we wiped out every non-native species. Further, much like we've talked about around the idea of complex system science, not only are different pollinators specialized to certain types of plants, some are even specialized to harvest pollen during different times of the day, helping increase the resource partitioning and diversity while further reducing that competition. So getting this straight, more native flowers, and that's going to be a good thing. Yeah, but not entirely. (laughs) Elliot's eyes have just rolled yes, into the back. I'm trying to stare. Bum- I'm trying to stare daggers at you, thirty miles away. <laughs> Good. So bumblebees seem to do better sharing an ecosystem with honeybees as long as the site isn't homogenous, regardless of species nativity. Again, think about the honeybee as a generalist who can basically go anywhere. Further, we still have some problems to work out. The first, and we've hinted at it, is that the impacts of our monocrop food system, right? Not only is it damaging ecosystem stability, but our system of moving bees into these monocrops are getting bees sick. And there's a bunch of reasons. That's part of why we've dedicated a whole series to honeybees. Part of it is because of how we raise them. Part of it is because of how we've bred them. Part of it is because of how we manage them. Basically, they're really just living despite our best efforts. Okay, and I guess I find that oddly comforting because maybe we can't mess that up too bad. Yeah, don't speak too soon. So one problem for native pollinators in particular is that we're starting to see interbreeding from those domestic honeybees and native bees, specifically bumblebees. This is particularly common in greenhouses where bumblebees do a majority of the pollination because the greenhouses can't support a honeybee hive. We're also seeing parasites and other nasty stuff make their way from honeybee hives to native bumblebees, whose populations are already significantly down, as we've said, so adding more to this challenge isn't really, like, ideal, right? No, all I'm hearing is that we just, like, need to abandon conventional agriculture. And I'm looking at Matt right now, and I want to know where he got that torch so fast. Aren't we, like, burning stuff now? These kids today, such a rush. I'm so proud. There's like a combine down the road. Okay. I don't think we're quite there yet, but I do enjoy your enthusiasm, like A+. I do think we're at the point in the episode where we can return to that first question. Are honeybees causing pollinator collapse? I was actually asking you guys, what do you think? Uh, I'm just going to say the opposite of whatever Matt says. All right. Ready? One, two, three. Yes. Fuck. So I think I'd agree with one of you. They are an easy target for people to point to without the messy. Well, it's actually a bunch of these things we already know weren't good. And honeybees are kind of like the nexus because of how we manage them. And it's it's complicated is really what it comes down to. right? Awesome. So I don't have to feel bad about eating honey. Especially not if it's like big box honey. That's basically like refined sugar with added flavor. What the fuck did they do to my honey? Yeah, we could talk about the problems with the sugar industry for days if you're down. 
Yeah, no, not today at least. Should I add it to the list? Add it to the list. The list. So for folks that are saying, okay, what do we do then? If it's so complicated, there's so much nuance to this conversation. Like what what do people that know more than the average person say we should be doing? Now, that's where the Xerces Society can come in. They're an organization in defense of native invertebrates, and they have what I think are some really good ideas around the appropriateness of honeybees. Their first question is to ask if there are any endangered pollinators in the area identified. Within like four miles of any of these sites is too close to have honeybees. For apiaries further than four miles from these sites, keeping 20 or less hives is the maximum recommended, and apiaries should be at least four miles apart. Holy shit, bees have their own 420 rule. Finally. Smoke bees every day. Ugh, Miranda. It makes them sleepy. It makes them sleepy and docile. (laughs) Somehow in all of this, we, we answered and did not answer any of the questions you probably had. We may have raised more questions than answered, but I I do really hope that people listened and uh, enjoyed the nuance to this conversation. That's it's really complicated. It's not something that fits on a meme. Uh, it's not something that has an easy answer where we should be blaming people that are having honeybees or blaming one particular problem, you know, the invasive Japanese knotweed, as being the reason or. Ha- blaming the bees on the Japanese knotweed or any of these like really easy like scapegoats that are collectively making a really shitty situation, right? It's everyone's fault, not anyone in particular. This was actually a really fun episode to research because it was so complicated and like I love going down rabbit holes. So like the whole uh, research piece was a lot of fun. But this is basically kind of the direction we're going to be going in is, okay, if honeybees exist and they're going to be on this landscape, what are the things we need to know? to be better stewards of that landscape with the honeybees on it, right? How do we prepare the honeybees to exist in harmony with those native pollinators? And what does that look like? This content over the next couple months that we're going to be doing is going to be different than probably any other beekeeping content you've probably ever really listened to. If you've ever taken a beekeeping class, you're going to notice that oddly enough, other than the first two episodes on like the, the foundations of bees, we don't really talk about anything you've ever heard about. And um, that should get you really excited, really interested, because I thought it was really interesting and uh, has made me a, a significantly better beekeeper. So uh, I think you guys will really appreciate this stuff. Yeah. And on another note, if anybody wants to see man-made bees take revenge on humans, you should watch Black Mirror season season three, episode six. It was a good episode. Dude, the bees take over and fuck shit up. It's fucking horrifying. Yeah. It's a fun up. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't watch TV, so you should watch that one. I mean, it's it, the bees are man-made, but like, it's it's a cool sci-fi twist. They they do some cool shit with it. They have like they have like three D printer like beehives, and they make more they make more bees. It's cool. Yeah, listen, I barely know how to use a microphone. I don't need to think technology is that good. Like you won't. I'm scared enough. You of won't it. sleep for a few days after you watch it. I promise you. It's it's <laughs> it's that frightening. Like it's it's horrifying yeah. to think about. It'll keep you up a little bit. Yeah. So no, I'm not gonna watch, watch it. that. I don't Okay, no. but like watch. Yeah, it. seriously watch it. But like maybe I won't. Just hear me All out. Right. No. I'm just going to add it to my list then. I'm going to clock clock Okay, add it to your list. Orange your ass. Just you pry, know, just pry your eyeballs it. open and <laughs> just going to cram so much pop culture into your brain you're going to pop. Pop like I got nothing for that. God damn it. You, what are you talking to, uh... about? You just mentioned it in the episode like a bee that won't stop gorging. Oh, pop like a honeybee eating rhododendron nectar. Nectar. Mm. Uh. If we mm, get to like a certain niche, amount. niche is shit. 
if we get to like a certain amount of Patreons, can we clockwork orange you? <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> Motivate 10,000. 10,000 patrons and I will let you know. 600. We're almost at 600. Yeah, 10,000 patrons. Tell all your friends, tell your family, and we'll we'll stream it. We'll stream it live. I'll I'll strap Andy to a chair for 18 hours. Ellie's been waiting to do that for at least 20 years. Half of our friendship. We've known each other more than... (laughs) Since we were six. Since we were six years old. So maybe like 30 years. Oh, that's going to be a lot. A lot of content, buddy. (laughs) Oh, No. Please I can't no. wait to just sit, uh, sit there. It just occurred to me that we never ran a second commercial in this episode. So lucky you guys. We were just so into this shit that we did not even put a second commercial. You're welcome. In. You're welcome. Elliot fought for you valiantly that you didn't have to listen to our stupid commercials. <laughs> um, but because we didn't do any of that stuff, please, please subscribe to our Patreon. Not so that I get clockwork orange. So we can clockwork orange. I mean, that's just no. a sweet bonus, though. That that yeah. might be a bonus. But also, please, please give us a review on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen to us. It's very big in getting us suggested to other new listeners and uh, makes us feel good. So make Matt happy. Make Elliot happy. He's never happy. Make us happy. So, I'm happy. He's never I happy. Am, I've never seen you people, happy. People, you are just like a stereotype, an angry black It's man. not true at all. Uh, all my friends call me gay all the time. <laughs> no one does. They mean, they mean happy. No. I know they do, but no one does. I mean, no one calls you gay. I promise. Okay. Okay. So I'm not happy. <laughs> You're not happy. I'm sad now. Good. Seen how good. Elliot's face <laughs> instantly. Like, sad, cl- sad clown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, we're done here. Goodbye, people.